Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22 from the New Living Translation. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changes coin over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. We now look forward to hearing the Lord's message through David. Thanks, David. Thanks so much, Amy. There's a saying amongst the politicians in Canberra, if you want a friend in politics, then get a dog. I've seen firsthand the fickle nature of the allegiances in politics. Such is the nature of the relationship in local, state and federal government that they can give you the illusion of trust for one another. With so many relationships becoming transactional, it makes it challenging when you feel as though people only like you because of what you can do for them. And I wonder if Jesus didn't feel this way at times. Let me pray. Jesus, as we spend time in your word, we ask that you would enliven it for us, that you would help us to see the truths that you want to reveal to us today. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us deep to deep? Would you quicken in our spirit an understanding of you, of the depth and the breadth of your love for us and for our need to continue to believe and to trust in you. Brood over us, Holy Spirit. Be at work in and through this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, earlier today, I asked the question, if you, why do you live where you live? So I wonder for those joining us now, how you might respond to that question. Jesus chose an interesting spot to live in, to, a spot to base his ministry in Galilee and primarily in Capernaum. Now, to understand Galilee is to understand much of what influenced Jesus' teaching and his ministry. So it's worthwhile taking a little bit of time to set the scene. Galilee, 
Well, Galilee was in the northern reaches of Palestine and ruled by Herod Antipas from 4 BC to AD 39. There was a major trade route that uh, made its way through Galilee and skirted past Capernaum with traders travelling from Asia to Egypt and passing through that area. So it was a great place to collect taxes, hence Matthew the tax collector. There was a strong mix of cultures in the region, absorbing Greek and Roman influences, and yet it still remained patriotic to Jerusalem. But the mix of cultures uh, resulted in a distinctive, less refined, aromatic pronunciation of words that quickly differentiated the Galilean from their southern Judean counterpart. Matthew 26, 73, it reminds us of Peter, um, the Galilean, whose his accent gave him away when he was uh, denying Jesus. With those from the south looking down their nose at those from Galilee, the racial mixture, differences in speech and location to the northern neighbours caused the Judean Jews in the south to view Galilee and its inhabitants with a degree of contempt. Galilee itself was generally divided up into the upper um, altitude areas, the upper Galilee, and then the lower areas of lower Galilee with the limestone hills and cliffs of 1,200 metres above sea level in the upper north, dropping down almost in a step fashion to the lower south, where the altitude was 200 metres below sea level at the Sea of Galilee. Galilee would have been almost like the food bowl of Israel, growing grapes, pomegranates, olives and grains of all kinds fishing in the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. And this comes out time and time again in Jesus' teaching, his parables and his illustrations. Along with the good, Galilee also faced its struggles. The east-west valley region between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea was almost like a wind tunnel at times, with 100 plus kilometre an hour winds funnelling through that area, creating flash storms over the Sea of Galilee. It was a region that also struggled with disease and low life expectancy, with almost 50% of those interned, those buried in Galilee, dying before they reached adulthood. There was a host of diseases, and with the 600 millimetres of annual rainfall, heavy dews, and the prevalence of water meant that they had a long struggle with malaria that, ex- that continued to exist all the way up to the 1920s. For Jesus to live where he lived in Galilee, using Capernaum as his ministry base, meant that there was greater freedom from the constant watchful eye of the Jerusalem high priest and the Roman control. It meant that he was close enough to Jerusalem to go up to the religious festivals, but still far enough away to keep him at a more comfortable distance. He was also closer to his boyhood home of Nazareth and his half-siblings. Eleven of the twelve of Jesus' disciples were from the region of Galilee. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to John chapter 4, verse 43. 
John chapter 4, verse 43. Previously, Jesus had left Galilee to go to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. We heard how well that went down when, uh, through Amy's Bible reading from John chapter 2, verse 13 and following. Jesus was not the only one to go down to, uh, from Galilee to the Passover. It was the responsibility of every good Jew and especially every Jewish male to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover. But on the way back, rather than bypassing Samaria as all good Jews should do, Jesus goes through Sychar in Samaria and in the process turns a faith conversation on its head. And thanks Sam for your message last week. After a two-day extended stay in Samaria, we pick up the story again in John chapter 4, verse 43. Many of those in Galilee um, uh, that had travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover had already arrived home. And in many of those homes, Jesus would have made a riveting yarn to tell over the dinner table. So we find ourselves in chapter 4, verse 43. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honoured in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did there. As he travelled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. In verse 48, Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me? unless you see miraculous signs and wonders. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little bit harsh, don't you think? Like, crikey, a desperate dad comes to Jesus. He, he doesn't want to see his beautiful boy become just another statistic of Galilee, possibly suffering from malaria. The dad makes a 26-kilometre trip navigating the windy roads and weaving up the 500-metre climb from Capernaum on the water's edge of the Sea of Galilee up to the lower hill lands of Cana. It was hoped that the rumours would be true. The reputation that Jesus was gaining would be true. That here was the healer. A man who could do amazing things. The unbelievable, the incomprehensible. What wouldn't you do for a child that you loved so much? Tearing yourself away from a bedside vigil to chase down your last, your only hope. So the government official makes his way to Cana asking for directions to find Jesus. And with every desperate direction comes another, joining the growing crowd, following behind. And then dropping to his knees, the official begs, 
pleads for Jesus to heal his son who is at death's door with no other hope. And with him, the lunchtime crowd gathers to see. The desperate plea is met with, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? But to understand this, we have to join some of John's dots together. The crumb trail that he has already left in the preceding chapters. In John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read this. He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, but even they rejected him. John chapter 2 Verses 23 to 25. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. John 4:44. He himself said that a prophet is not honoured in his own hometown. And while Matthew, Mark and Luke place this statement against Nazareth, there is good reason to see why John is contrasting it between the nation of Israel as a whole, who wanted to see Jesus put on a good show, comparing this to those of the Samaritan town who had just seen Jesus and had accepted him as the Messiah just a few days ago. But also the you here in verse 48 is plural, not a singular you, not singling out you. It's as if Jesus is looking out. He's looking out beyond the man bowing down at his feet, pleading right in front of him. He's looking out beyond that. Jesus' gaze goes further to the crowd, rubbing their hands together, waiting to see Jesus perform. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? But Jesus' attention returns to the desperate plight of a dad and his dying boy. The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better. And they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realised that that was the very time that Jesus told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. This account from the life of Jesus ripples through time, from the first readers of the account to us today. And the challenge for then 
and it is also a challenge for us today. It challenges us about how do we see Jesus. There are three responses to Jesus in this account from John. For the crowd, it's been several days since Jesus' last stand-up performance in Jerusalem. Controversial, entertaining, satisfying for those who are happy to see those who exploit get their own. They were ready for another show from Jesus. Today, we can easily find ourselves entertained by Jesus, fascinated by Jesus, wanting to see Jesus um, do um, some, something fun and enjoyable, wanting to be able to quote from Jesus when it suits us and when it works in our favour. After all, wouldn't Jesus be on our side in sticking it to the man? But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Then comes an official, a person who worked for the man, Herod Antipas, an official in his employ. He comes to Jesus in hope, in the hope that Jesus can change things, can fix what is broken to heal his son. He came to Jesus in the hope of what Jesus could do for him and his son. And rather than turning him away, Jesus calls him to trust. You came all this way to beg me to come with you. The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Daring to hope brought the official all this way. And now, daring to go home will take him back home again to see what would happen. Not with Jesus, but going alone carrying the belief that Jesus would be true to his word. But then, on returning home, something changes in him. A response of belief in what Jesus can do for him changes. It changes from a belief in what Jesus can do for me to a belief in who Jesus is, which changes me. Then the father realised that this was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Today, perhaps you've come to believe in Jesus because of what he can do for you. You've come to, to Jesus to ask him to change a situation in your life, a circumstance, a hurt, a pain, a hope, a dream. And sure, sometimes Jesus will answer the cries of our hearts with a yes. But there is a belief that shifts for the official and his family. And this is the greater miracle of all. The more powerful work that takes place in a person's life, 
moving from a transactional belief to a relational belief. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Not just in Jesus' power to heal, but a belief in Jesus, the person, the anointed one, the Son of God, the one who is God. So I wonder, where do you find yourself today? Seeing Jesus at a distance, keeping him at a distance, with a healthy sense of curiosity and interest, wondering, I wonder what will happen next. I wonder how I can quote him to get at someone or to get what I want. Perhaps you've been coming to Jesus with your hopes and dreams, your aches and pains, believing, longing that Jesus can make a difference for you and those you love. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But how much more, how much richer, how much deeper it is to believe in Jesus, in who he is, Messiah, King, Lord and God. That is a relational belief that changes you. Let me pray. Jesus, we can often read and, and reflect on things and miss the deeper truths. Lord, help us to better understand the, the, the difference that it, it makes to move from a transactional belief in you because of what you can do for us to believing in you because of who you are and how that changes us. Holy Spirit, would you continue to do your work of transformation in us, whether it be an acceptance of Jesus as Lord and Saviour, not because of what he can just do for us, but because of who he is and how that can change us. Amen. You know, Jesus encourages us to ask, to seek, to knock, and to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. He wants us to come to him. What would you ask of Jesus today? And how would you respond if Jesus doesn't come through in the way that you want? How might you grow in your belief in a personal relationship with Jesus? And how might this relationship change you? And in what area of life does Jesus want to trust you? You see, it's not just about us trusting in Jesus, but it's about us being someone that Jesus can trust, that Jesus can, can invite and open up opportunities for, for him to involve us in the things that he wants us to be involved in and do. There's going to be some music played, and as the music's played, I invite you to spend some time to prayerfully reflect, to pull out those response cards for those at home, to use the, the chat function and to respond to the things that God's saying to you today.
God bless you.